At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Good morning. Uh, If we've not had an opportunity to meet, uh, my name is Kurt McDonald. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Gospel Community Church. And this morning, uh, it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Uh, Some four weeks ago, we began our journey uh, in the Minor Prophets, and and we've been looking at uh, Hosea, and what we've been endeavoring to do is exegete particular texts. Uh, When I say the word exegete, it just means to lead out from. Uh, We've been endeavoring to exegete particular texts and really look at uh, the book as as a whole. And so uh, those of you who are uh, in community groups, uh, they just talked about uh, talking about the sermon in community groups. So uh, some groups are out ahead of the sermon. Some groups talk about it after. Uh, So next week, what we're going to do is we will have uh, a special sermon just for our celebration Sunday. uh, And then we are going to jump into the book of Joel, uh, the next book in the Minor Prophet. So just just so you know, again, all of that, uh, Lord willing. Here's what we've seen so far uh, in the book of Hosea. Hosea was called to be a prophet. uh, And this prophet was given uh, this call from God a very unusual thing that God asked him to do, uh, which was to marry uh, a prostitute, not only to marry her, uh, but to love her. It wasn't as if he was just doing this out of duty, but he was called to really love her and be faithful to her. And so that is exactly what Hosea does. He obeys the Lord and and he marries this woman uh, who is unfaithful to him. They have children together uh, and and she is so unfaithful, leaves him uh, and, and even finds herself in slavery, enslaved and he goes and he buys her back off of uh, the auction block. And, and when he buys her back, what happens then uh, is he doesn't scold her. He doesn't yell at her for being unfaithful. Rather, he gives her a clean slate. And there's, a, there's this whole beautiful scene in chapter 3 where uh, we see that. And so the, the point is, why, why is this story here? Why are we being told about this man who was a prophet, who was called to marry a prostitute? Well, the, the whole point is this. God is teaching us something about who he is. In, in this story, God is, is picturing himself as, as Hosea, as the faithful husband who loves his unfaithful wife. And so not only is the book of Hosea teaching us something about who God is, this book is teaching us something about who we are. We, we are the ones who are prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We are the ones who are unfaithful. We are the ones who have turned our backs on God when he has provided for us and loved us and cared for us and, and given us and, and just been so merciful to us. We are the ones that go far away. And so this book teaches us about who God is, and it teaches us something about who we are. We are the ones that are unfaithful. If you're taking notes, Here in the book of Hosea, adultery is the picture of idolatry because both acts break the covenant promise. That's that's what's being conveyed to us in the book 
of Hosea. There was this covenant promise. What, what was the covenant promise? The covenant promise was from God was this, I will be your God and what? And you will be my people. That's the covenant promise from God. And so what's happened is as they turn to worship other gods, they're breaking their covenant promise. And in the same way as a man and wife make this covenant promise to be faithful to one another, when one is unfaithful, that's breaking the covenant promise. And so that's exactly why adultery is the picture of idolatry, because both of those acts simply break this covenant promise. They, they, essentially what's happening with the people of Israel, as God is saying to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and, and as they turn their back on that, the reason that they're turning their back on this covenant promise at the, at the base level of it, here it is, here's why they're doing that. They don't want to be weird. That's, that's at the base level. I mean, have you guys read Leviticus? Have you read any of like all these, uh, all these strange commands that they're told to you? Don't eat this. Don't wear this kind of clothes. Do this kind of thing. And, and they get this sense of we're just, we're weird and we don't want to be weird. We want to be like the other nations. The other nations do all this other kind of stuff and they have kings and they do all this kind of, and, and we want to be like that. We don't want to be the weird ones. Church family, I wonder if, if you're here this morning and you're feeling that tension of being being a Christ follower in a world that is secular, and you're feeling that tension, and deep inside of your soul, there's something saying, I don't want to be weird. I, I want to, you know, like in this age of rage, when everybody is demanding that you pick a side, I wonder if you feel strange saying, you know what, no matter where I land politically, over here, over here, with that, what my first allegiance is to Christ. To say that is to be weird, it's to be strange. And the whole point of these people turning to other gods and wanting to live this other kind of life is because they didn't want to be weird. They wanted to be like the other people. And so what is so astonishing, if you just take a, a cursory reading of the Old Testament, it, the, the, the whole thing can be summed up with the ebb and flow of them going to God and being faithful and then wanting to be like the other nations. And so they leave and they do all this, and then God disciplines them. He raises up another nation. The other nation comes and they, they punish Israel and then they go back to God and then they go back to the idols and they go back to God and they go back to the, I mean, it's, it's just, it's over and over and over again. And so church family, if we are not careful, we can allow a sense of, of self-righteousness to creep into us. Because, I mean, we could look at it and say, how ridiculous are these children of Israel? I mean, after all that God had done for them, after all the miracles that they had seen, I mean, a pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, the parting of the Red Sea, water from a rock, manna from heaven. They had seen all of these things, and yet they go and they bow down to these things that are carved out of rock. I mean, how ridiculous is this? I mean, they, they go and they bow down to this, this thing that's like made out of metal that somebody made with their hands and they're, they're giving wine offerings and grain offerings and all this kind of thing. And you look at that and, and we can almost allow a sense of self-righteousness to creep in as we look at them and say, what in the, why would they ever do that? It doesn't make any sense at all whatsoever. And church family, if you find a sense of self-righteousness when comparing yourself to the people of Israel, it's because you don't understand what idol worship really is. If you're taking notes, jot this down. An idol is anything we sin to get or sin to keep. An idol is anything that we sin to get to obtain that we have it. Or 
It's anything that we sin to keep. We, we have to maintain this. It's, it's mine. And, and so be honest with yourself. What, what person or thing or amount of money or emotional state or, or state of physical euphoria do you want so bad that you are willing to disregard the clear commands of God? Whatever that thing is, it's an idol. So church family, are you willing to withhold your tithe so you can get closer to so-called financial freedom? Are you willing to sacrifice time with your family and engagement with your church so you can work more hours so that you can get that promotion and so that you can feel successful? Or how about despite the effects that it's having on your health, are you willing to continue to indulge in unhealthy food and drink because of the taste and how it makes you feel? To ask it another way, what are you striving for and are you willing to sin to get it? What are you striving for? Everybody's striving for something. Everybody's chasing after something. And so the question is, are you willing to sin to get that thing you're chasing? If that's so, that's, that's an idol. We're, we're Americans, aren't we? We love comfort. We love individualism. We love freedom. More than anything, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to a, a bunch of young families, right? The, the thing that we love the most, probably our greatest and biggest idol, right, is, is Insta-family, isn't it? We, we just love to see that, that picture-perfect family. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we all want, right? That Instagrammable family, that picture-perfect where everything is fine and all things are lovely and beautiful and it's all the pretty pictures. It's, it's never the Instagram picture where the husband and wife are in a fight, it's, it's always the picture where they're snuggled up to each other. It's, it's never the Instagram picture where the kid's face is red and they're laying down on the floor throwing a temper tantrum. Nobody gets a picture of that and posts that. We wait till they're smiling and behaving and their clothes are all put together and there's not a big snot bubble coming out of their nose. We, we want that so badly and we'll chase it. But in order to get that Instagram family, we have to cover sin. We have to cover imperfections. We have to pretend like everything is okay. I, I, wonder, I wonder what you're willing to do in order to get what you want. Or how about this? Are you willing to sin to keep something? Not just to get something, but to keep something. Are you willing to ignore the habitual sin of your spouse in order to keep the peace? Are you willing to deny your faith in order to keep the relationship afloat with your friend or your coworker? Are you willing to neglect your family and your church to work more hours to keep the lifestyle? Are you concealing sin so that you can keep your pride? Are you withdrawing from Christian community so that you can keep your safe boundaries? I'll say that one again. Are you withdrawing from Christian community so you can keep your safe boundaries? As people draw closer and they start to see the cracks, are you pushing them away so that they cannot come in and help you? That's an idol. That's an idol, church family. So this is the same as idol worship because it's something that you are willing to break the covenant for. This idea of comfort or the Instagram family or uh, having your own little safe boundaries and keeping people away. All of those are idols because it's something that you're willing to break the covenant for. The covenant being, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's idol worship. That's exactly what it is. It's looking to that thing to give you what only God can provide. When we do that, that's idol worship. That's exactly 
That's exactly what it is. And so what we're going to see in our text today is an adulterous and idol-worshiping people. But more importantly, more importantly, we're going to see the power of God's transforming love that takes an adulterous, wandering, idol-worshiping people and instead of only pouring out wrath, instead of only pouring out justice, he pours out love. He pours out love on them. He loves them and it's that love that draws us. It's not fear, it's love. I mean, just look at, look at verse nine. Look at verse nine in, in, our, in our text. It says, I will not execute my burning anger. He decides not to do it. And then look at the beginning of verse 10. It says, they shall go after the Lord. And so it's the love when he says, I will not execute my vengeance and anger upon them. Instead, he pours out love and compassion and mercy. And it's that love and compassion and mercy that draws us to the roaring lion. He's a roaring lion in this text. And they don't come running out of fear like, like the lion's going to devour them. But it's because they have respect and reverence for the Lord because of his goodness and his power and his kindness. And they know that he's not going to devour them, but he has promised to devour their enemies. And so the the children come running to the roaring line because of his love. And so more than just an idolatrous, adulterous people in this text, what comes shining through is the love of God, the love that he has for us. As a matter of fact, here's the whole point of the sermon. God's love has the power to transform our desires for temporal happiness into a desire for eternal holiness. Isn't that what idols offer? They, they offer you temporal happiness. They, they offer to like scratch that little itch that you can't seem to reach, right? They, they offer that quick fix, that temporal happiness. And so what the love of God does as he pours it out on us it has the power for us to look at that temporal happiness that this idol may very well provide. And say, you know what? Instead of this temporal happiness, I would rather have eternal holiness. And that's what the power of God's love does. Well, let's get into our text. Church family, y'all ready? Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you have been paying even the slightest bit of attention, you'll know that we have now changed the metaphor, right? What was, what was the metaphor before? The metaphor before was God as a husband and us as the unfaithful spouse. That was the metaphor. But now the metaphor here has changed. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Israel, I called my son. So we've changed the metaphor from husband and wife to now father and son, well, why the change of metaphor? Well, we need both metaphors to really help us even get a glimpse of the fullness of the love of God, don't we? The, the first metaphor is husband and wife. It's this passionate, consuming love that God has for us. It's a jealous love. God is jealous for you. Did you know that? And so we needed to see that picture of the husband and wife to understand this jealous, passionate love that God has for us. But now the metaphor is changing because God wants us to see that he has a love that a parent has for a child. It's an unfailing love. It, it's an unstoppable love. It, it, it's a love that, that absolutely never runs out no matter what. I mean, <laughs> think about it. What, what do babies do? 
they cause us a lot of inconvenience. That's what they do. That's, I mean, they, they bring nothing to the table. There's no words of wisdom coming from a baby. They're not earning a paycheck that's you know, helping support the household. They, you know, eat, sleep, poop, and pretty much wake you up in the middle of the night. And that's all they got. And, and we love them. And we love them, man. You just, you can't not love them. And so that's the picture. That's the picture that, that God is wanting us to see here, that, that God is his father, he, he, he loves, he loves his children so, so very much. And so he's painting this picture that not only is he a jealous lover for you, but he also has the love of a father, the love that a father has for his child. He is a loving father. The commentator James Montgomery Boyce has this to say, in the Old Testament, God is rarely called father. Mostly he is called Yahweh and Lord. Only a handful of times is God called father. Now he is, he is called father in the Old Testament. Don't get me wrong. But when God is called father in the Old Testament, he is seen as the father of the nations. He is, he is the corporate Father, And so here's what happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he begins to expand this theological understanding of God being Father. Jesus calls the Father, my Father. He repeatedly says this time and time again. As a matter of fact, this is one of the reasons why the Sadducees and Pharisees got so upset with Jesus is because he kept calling God my Father. He personalized the fatherhood of God. Now, on the other hand, the reason why the Sadducees and Pharisees got so upset is because Jesus said that their father was the devil. But, that's John chapter 8, but he kept repeatedly saying that God was his father. And as a matter of fact, he taught his disciples and he told his people and those who were following him to not only view God as the God of the nation and the father of the nation, but as their own father. Just listen to John 20. Uh, this is Jesus speaking to Mary Magdalene after he had uh, returned from the dead. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to who? My father and your father to my God and to your God. God is a loving, a loving father. And so even just saying that, that can, that can be painful for some of us because we don't experience that or haven't experienced that in real life. Our fathers may have been abusive or distant or... And so to say that God is Father, some, something in our spirit can, can kind of try to hit the brakes there and go, wait a second. But, but here's the thing. This Father is good. He's a loving Father. He's, he's not broken like our earthly fathers. He's good. He's a good Father. I want you to see in this text, it says, when Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called, I called my son. Note the sovereign election of God choosing to redeem his people for the simple fact that he loves them. There, there wasn't anything that Israel could do for God. I mean, what, what did this nation have to offer God? Like, like Israel was the only nation that could make him look good and like do the things that he wanted. Absolutely not. He, as a matter of fact, the very reason that they were few and didn't amount to much of anything, that's exactly why he chose them. He, he loves them simply because he loves them. They, they are his people in captivity in Egypt. And because they are his people, because he loves them, he's going to go get them. 
In the same way, church family, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's because God has placed his love upon you. It's because God has chased you. It's because God has sought you out. Romans tells us that no one seeks for God. If you find God, it's because he found you first. If you love God, it's because he loved you first. If you're following Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has tracked you down. And this is the God that we serve. You see, they are not, Israel is, is not born his nation as if they were born royalty. Israel is an adopted nation. They are adopted into the love of God. He loves them because he loves them. He sets them free from bondage because they're his people because he loves them. If you're taking notes, God is not indifferent towards you. He desires you because he chose you. Do you know this? God wants you. I want to I speak to the wife that feels unwanted this morning. God wants you. To the husband that feels like he doesn't amount to anything and because he can't be good enough, he's not wanted. Listen to me. He wants you. God wants you. The Father wants you. To the, to the single person that, that feels like they're never going to find a spouse, they feel unwanted. God wants you. He wants you. He's chosen you. He's your father and he loves you. He's a good father. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 goes from this proud papa, right? Do you see the proud papa in verse 1? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, in verse 2, he, he goes from proud papa to devastated dad. It, it's a shifting of, of gears here. It's the, it's the pain that a parent feels when a child in some fit of adolescent rage looks at their parent and says, I hate you, or I wish I, I was in a different family, or I wish I was never born. That's the type of pain we're going to see in verse 2, the pain of a parent and a rebellious child. Look at verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to idols. Baal was uh, the supreme Canaanite god. Uh, he had the head of a bull and the body of a man. He's, uh, Baal is often depicted as a, uh, outstretching his arms to, to receive uh, the gifts. And uh, he's known as the fertility god. Uh, and so they would pray to him for a plentiful harvest. Uh, they would sacrifice grain and wine uh, so that their harvest would be plentiful because he was the fertility god. But much more dark, they also sacrificed children to Baal because they wanted to have more children. And so it was a dark and terrible practice as they turned from him. And here's the tragedy. All of the blessing and all the abundance, all the goodness, all the mercy that they had received, they were attributing to this idol and not to the true source. And if you want to take it a step even further, they were really attributing all of their wealth, all of their bounty, and all the good things that had come to them, they were actually attributing it to themselves. What do I mean? Well, I mean how the idol system worked. If you appeased the gods, then they blessed you. And so if you had a plentiful harvest, it's because you did the right sacrifice to the gods. It really comes back to you. If, if you had lots and lots of kids, it wasn't because you, you know, did the right ritual uh, over here. And so it, it's because, it, because the gods did that for you. It's because you did it. 
And so really, if you're taking notes, deep at the heart of idolatry is the illusion of self-sufficiency. They didn't need God. They didn't need God's people. They could do it themselves. All they had to do was say the right incantation and make the right sacrifice and do the right dance and light the right incense and and all the sort of things. If they could just do the right stuff, then they would be blessed. And it was really all dependent on them. It was the illusion of self-sufficiency. I'm okay. I can can do this thing on my own. Look at verse 3. It says this, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Do you see what's happening in this text? He says, I taught them to, I taught them, I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms. You know, do you get the picture? Do you see what's happening here? Parents in the room, you know, when you were sitting on the floor with your little tiny one and you lifted up their little arms and you began to walk with them like this and you let them go and they took those first little steps. Of course, they fell right over, but they took those first steps and how filled with joy that you were. That's, that's what he's saying. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. There's this picture of God. God, the loving father holding the hands of Israel, teaching it to walk and teaching it to go on its way. But they did not know that I'm the one who healed them. How many times have, have they come busting in the door and said, daddy, daddy, my, and, and they move their hands and their knees are all scraped up. And so you set them up on the counter and you, you get out the hydrogen peroxide and you clean and bandage their wounds. That's exactly what's happening here. This is a picture of this loving, caring father. He says, uh, I, I'm the one that bent down and fed them. How many times have we sat with the spoon at the kitchen table goes here comes the airplane you know it's like nasty baby food and they're not opening up but you're feeding them anyway this is this is this picture of a of a loving father who is teaching them to walk and is binding their wounds and is feeding them and caring for them he's a good father he's a loving father he says i i, I just look at it i mean it's it's an incredible it's an incredible picture this is a picture of of a daddy who is just smitten by his little girls. Where my, where, my, where my dad's in the house? Girl dads, right? It's a picture of a dad smitten by his little girls. It's a, it's a picture of a dad smitten by, by his, just proud of his little boy, right? I mean, I, church family, y'all need to pray for me. I got a real problem. I'm, I'm addicted to buying stuff for my little girls. I mean, my house, like, I, it's, I, I live this double life because I'm so frustrated because, like, their toys are everywhere. And I'm like, what is wrong with these kids? There's just stuff everywhere. Well, it's because I keep buying them stuff. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's my problem. Like, my wife got onto me at Christmas because we, ha- we have this rule in the McDonald house. It, it only, we, get, we get our kids three gifts. Look, they got grandparents everywhere that buy them way too much stuff. So we say at Christmas you get three gifts. Well, I just keep buying stuff over three gifts. And I'm like, if we just shove it in the same box, right? I mean, there's still this three boxes. I mean, there's like 18 presents in there, but you know, but that's, I want you to see that's the picture of, of this God who, who, who is, yes, he is a, a jealous lover, like a husband jealous for his wife, but he's also a loving father with that type of love. I'm, I was blown away. Look at the end of verse four. It says, and I bent down to feed them. He, 
Do, do you do you get that in your mind? He he bent, the, the text says he bent down. Can you fathom the heights from which he has bent down? Can we fathom how low that he has stooped? This is the God that controls the birth and the death of every star in the galaxy. The God who holds the planets in place. This is the God that if we saw his full and true holiness, we would surely die. This is the God who is responsible for the growth of the trees on the planet. And he bent down so low to allow us to take those trees and form it into a cross. This is the God who owns the thorns and thistles that was made into a crown of thorns that was placed on his head. This is the God who has stooped so low that allowed us to create iron ore into metal spikes that nailed him to the cross. This is how low he has stooped down in order to feed us. And so when you look at this type of love, you can only ask yourself, how in the world could we reject such a love? It's, it's insane. It's irrational that we should ever reject such a love. If you're taking notes, only the ugliness and pervasiveness of sin can explain how we could reject and refuse the love of God. Here he says he was leading them with cords of kindness and bands of love. It's only sin that distorts that view of God's love. So how is God going to respond to our rejection? Obviously, verses three and four is all about that. He's saying, I, I taught them to walk. I fed them. I, I did all these things, yet, yet they rejected me. And so uh, as we move into verse five, there's a, there's a shift here. And, and the question is, what is God going to do in response to our rebellion? Well, many of our fathers in response to our rebellion just stayed on the couch and drank another beer. Many of our earthly fathers just disappeared into the garage and, and ignored and, and, you know, stepped away. They d diverted. But he's a good father. What will he do? Well, listen to Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. So in the face of our rebellion, he will not ignore, he will not just veg out, he will not just leave it alone. He is the God of justice. He will come and he will discipline those whom he loves, which is exactly what happens in verse 5. Let's look at it. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. So their punishment is not going to be to go back in bondage in Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. That's not a good thing. Assyria will be their king because they have refused to return to me. This is God disciplining his people. I was, I was shocked at, at the end of this verse. Do you see? It, it, it's a little bit strange. So I felt like the verse should have read, Assyria shall be their king because they worshiped false gods. Because, the, because I'm going to punish them because they worship false gods. But that's not what he says. He says, because they have refused to return to me. So idol worship wasn't the main issue. It's an issue for sure. It's, it's an issue for sure. But the issue was them not returning. The issue was they did not repent. 
Because if they would have repented, he just would have, he would have forgave them. He would have just brought them back. And so uh, Martin Luther opens the Reformation by nailing the 95 Thesis to the, the Wittenberg Cathedral. And the very first was this. Here's the first thesis in his 95. He says this, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. Now, that just on a face value reading of that, that, that all of our life is supposed to be about repentance, it can kind of be disheartening, right? <laughs> like we're never going to get it right. We're just, you know, just keep on repenting because you're going to just keep on messing it up. There's going to be no growth or no, you know, it's just, just man, turn yourself over to it. But of course, that's not what Luther was saying at all. That's, that's not his point. What he's saying is that repentance is the way that we make progress in the Christian life. That was Luther's, that was Luther's point. Look at verse 6. The extent of their discipline, here's what it says. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. At this point, God sounds a bit like a parent who is fed up with a rebellious child. As a parent, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been at the end of your rope and you said, that's it. I'm done. I've had it. It's over. Here, God is saying, if these people don't want to act like my people, then they won't be my people. And so he allows Assyria to come in and to take them captive. And at this point, you might feel like that punishment's a little bit harsh. But listen to me, church family. God is always just. So as we look at something in the Bible and we think, ooh, that, that can't be right. Stop and pause for just a moment. You're taking what you think is right and placing it on God and saying, well, you're unholy to do this. No, no, God is always holy. God is never unjust in his punishment. He is always true and right. And to call God unjust is arrogant. In addition, we have really hard heads and sometimes harsh punishment is exactly what we need. While you might be asking God to get you out of a mess you're in, it is precisely because he loves you that he will allow you to experience the pain of your sin. So some of us have sinned and gotten ourselves into a mess and we're begging and asking God, please get me out of this. And he says, I love you too much to get you out of it. Because if I just get you out of it right now, you're not going to learn anything. And so sometimes he leaves us in the pain of our sin. He forgives us of our sin when we ask. But that does not mean that he erases all of the damage that sin does. Now, if we understand verse 7, we should be very scared. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they have called out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. If we understand verse 7, it should make us very, very scared. In addition, verse 7 should make us question how God can actually break this covenant. The truth is God has every right to break the covenant. But then verse 8 comes whispering in. You have the beginning where you have the proud papa that goes to devastated dad. In these verses five through seven, you see the discipline of God, the discipline, the good, right, righteous discipline of God coming in to punish his children because they have been rebellious. 
And then the love of the father begins to pour from the page. He, he is not just the dad that issues discipline. Some of us had that dad. He wasn't the loving dad. He wasn't the snuggling dad. He, he, he wasn't the, let, let's, let's go camping dad. He was just the disciplinarian dad. But here we find, look at verse eight. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? Listen to this, listen to this language. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Ephraim being uh, the predominant tribe in the northern kingdom. Remember that at this point, there are two, they're split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Ephraim being the predominant tribe in the northern kingdom. And so Ephraim and Israel, they're, they're synonymous. He, he, he's saying, you're being punished. I'm using Assyria to punish you, to discipline you because, because you've been rebellious, but I, I can't give up on you. I can't, I can't give up on you. His, his heart stirs in him. He says, how can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? You, you guys know Adma and Zeboim, right? <laughs> no, you don't. Listen, I didn't either. It's fine. As a matter of fact, listen, that's the point. That's the point. Now, here are two cities. Those are two cities. Here are two cities that you do know. Sodom and Gomorrah. You know those cities, right? What happened to those cities? Well, they were destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. Well, if you go back and read it, you'll know that Adma and Zeboim were also cities that were destroyed when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. But the point is, nobody remembers Adma and Zeboim. Not only did he destroy the city, but he destroyed it from memory. Nobody remembers it. And that's what he's saying. I will not destroy you, and I will not erase you from the memory. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Here's the point. Four times right here, he says, how can I? Did you see that? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And then three times, I will not. I Look at it. I will not destroy Ephraim. I, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again come in wrath. If you're taking notes, this is so important. Hosea is not a book about a prophet who marries a prostitute. It's about God and his love for his people. If, if you, it's like, it's like if you said, hey, what's the story of David and Goliath about? And you said, well, it's about a boy uh, who takes some lunch to his brothers who are soldiers. Is that what the story's about? Well, no, that's what happens in the story. That's what happens in the story, but that's not what the story's about. And in the same way, you, you read the opening, the opening verses of Hosea when the word of the Lord came to Hosea and he said, take for your wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Like you read the first section, the first paragraph of Hosea and you think, man, that's what the book's about. That's not what the book's about. That's not what the book's about at all. It's not about a prophet who marries a prostitute. It's about God's love for his people. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I? I will not. I will not is what God is saying. What God is doing with his love is that he is transforming 
forming them. Did, did you see? <laughs> he said, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy them. Why? For I am God and not a man. Why does he do this? Precisely because he is not like us. Precisely because what we would do is, oh, oh, you, you want to follow? You want to follow the bail? Okay, fine. I'll let you follow the bail. I'll just go ahead and turn you over. As a matter of fact, I will let Assyria come in and destroy you, and I will make you like Adma and Zeboim. I will erase you, period, paragraph. That's what we would say. But he says, I am not like man. I am God because he has this compassion and this love that never gives up. He's got this love that keeps on chasing you, no matter what. He's not like us. But what he's trying to do is make us more like him. And the way that he does that is by pouring out his love. The way that he makes us more like him is by never giving up on us. The way that he makes us more like him is that he continues to chase us. This is exactly what God is doing. I want you to see the power of God's love, that though our hearts are callous, this kind of love causes our hearts to become soft. Though we cannot see, this love restores our vision. God's will and his love has the power to change our will. He can move us off of pathways of destruction just with his love. If you're taking notes, God's love has the power to break the chains of the determination we have to destroy ourselves. Sin is destructive. And if you follow that path and keep going down that path, you will destroy yourself. But God's love is so powerful that it draws us and it lures us and it beckons us and it calls us, come away from the pathway of destruction and come back to the Lord. Return to me because I will bring you back. I will love you. I will restore you. He is the good, good father who runs out to the prodigal son and puts the ring on his finger and puts a cloak on his back and kills the fatted calf and has the party when the son returns. His love has the power to get us off those pathways of destruction. Look at what his love does. We can see what his love does in verse 10. He's poured out his, how can I? How can I do this? Three times, I will not, I will not. And look at the response of the people in verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. How do the people go after the Lord? It's because of the transforming power of his love. That's why they go after the Lord. And he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children come trembling from the west. They come trembling as the birds of Egypt and the doves of Assyria. That, the, the idea is that they come running from everywhere. That, that's the idea of, of talking about Egypt and Assyria and from the west. And this is incredible. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. My dad preached uh, last week and. When he preached last week, he, he talked about the whistle. You, you guys remember when my dad talked about the whistle last week? We, it, it, it's, it, it happens when I was growing up. That, that's, you knew when you heard the whistle. Now, it's, it, it's pre, just ask him to do it. He'll do it for you. It's, it's, a, it's a very unique whistle. And when you heard that whistle, you knew to, to come to where he was. We would be riding way out back in the pasture, riding horses way out back in the woods or down in the creek, and you would hear it. I mean, you, could, you can hear this whistle from, you know, outer space. I mean, it's that, kind of, it's that kind of whistle. And we knew that when you heard the whistle, it was, it was time to go back. Now, listen, we didn't go back to the barn when we heard the whistle because we were afraid we would catch a beating. Now, listen. If we didn't go back to the barn when we heard the whistle, we would catch a beating. But that's not why we went back to the barn. 
we went to him when we heard the whistle because he was a good father because he loved us because he cared for us because he was a faithful father and so when you heard the whistle you went to where he was here it says he will roar like a lion and when he roars his children shall come trembling that's that's the same idea that's the same idea here it's not as if they thought the lion was going to devour them that's not it at all but they knew that the lion was powerful they knew that the lion could devour their enemies and so when they heard the roar they came to him i think about that scene in the lion the witch in the wardrobe when Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver and, and he's explaining that there's a lion in the land and that the lion is the king and, and she says well is he safe and Mr. Beaver says he's not safe but he's good and he's king that's what's happening here in this text listen to what John has to say from his apocalyptic vision in Revelation 5 and one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. This is the lion which we worship, our great King Jesus. Did you see where God takes them? God's love takes them home. Did you see at the end of, of the verse, and I will return them to their homes. Do you remember when, when Jesus said to his disciples, if I go away, I go away to do what? To prepare a place for you. And he says that in my father's house, there are many rooms. That's where he's taking us. If you're taking notes, God loves, gives us a future. His love prepares this place for us, this place that we're all heading to. That is the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sin and no more shame and no more crime. Did you know in the new heavens and the new earth, it says that the gates are always open. You know why the gates are always opened? Because all of his enemies have been defeated and there'll be nothing for us to fear. So the gates are open and that is the home which the love of God is taking us to. I wonder if Hosea at this point was scratching his head trying to figure out how God could be holy and love justice and yet he says, I will not come in wrath. How could these things coexist? How can this loving father who is loving yet he is also just, why doesn't he come in wrath? He should come in wrath. But church family, the perfect picture of God's love and his justice is seen in Jesus. Amen. Did you see Jesus in our text today or did you miss him? Did, did you see Jesus in verse one? Go back and look at verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And listen, out of Egypt, I called my son. Did you miss Jesus? Oh, some of y'all missed Jesus in this text. He's in this text right here. You see, back what happens is Jesus is there. Many years later, Jesus would have been taken as a young child down to Egypt in order to escape the murderous King Herod. And Herod died, and the Lord told his parents that they should come back home. And it's in that, this very verse that Matthew quotes and applies it to Jesus. He says, out of Egypt, I have called my son in Matthew 2, 15. This is because Jesus did what Israel was supposed to do, obey God out of a heart of love and remain faithful to him, which is exactly what Jesus does. You see, Israel was supposed to be a blessing to all the other nations, yet they were not. And so the, all the other nations are blessed through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It is through his substitutionary sacrifice that all of the nations are blessed. You see, Jesus, the Lord has shown us not only how serious he takes sin, God takes sin so seriously. The father is so serious about our sin that he killed his own son. But you can also see not only the justice of God being poured out upon Christ, but you can also see the great love of God as, as he sacrificed his son for us. Don't you see the picture of justice and love? The picture of justice and love is there on the cross. And it's poured out. It's poured out for us. So today, I want you to hear the voice of the Lord coming from Hosea. This morning, I want you to see this great love that is coming to you. He wants you. He wants you. And so he says four times, how can I? How can I give up on you? How can I turn up? Do you hear the Lord speaking that to you this morning? How can I give up on you? And then three times, I will not. I will not. I will not. I love you so much that I have sent Jesus to satisfy my wrath and my justice and to show my love and compassion. In the end, I will settle you in a home with me forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so grateful that your love has the power to transform our desire for temporal happiness into a desire for eternal Holiness, God, let us be in awe of your love this morning. Let that love be poured out upon us and transform us, adulterers and idolaters, ones who are quick to run far from you. Let us be in awe that you have bent down to feed us. You have bent down to love us. You did not and will not leave us in bondage in Egypt, but you will set us free, and it is because of your great love. Oh, praise your name for your love and your justice, which is clearly seen on the cross. Let us be a people transformed into lives of holiness because of that great love. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.